Beyond the Mic with Sean Dillon. We're joined on the star line by best-selling finance author Eric Tyson. He's the only author to have four of his books simultaneously on Business Week's business bestseller list. His latest book, Paying for College for Dummies, is available at a retailer near you. Eric, welcome. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Let's go beyond the mic. You worked your way through Yale, paying a third of your college expenses. Now, was that through necessity, or was it through a desire not to have a ton of student loan debt hanging over your head? Good question. Uh, you know, I would say it was more the former, and I, I guess given my age, I'm fortunate that, you know, back back when I went through through Yale, it was a fraction of the cost that it is today. I mean, when I when I look at the cost of private colleges today, it's insanity. As you worked your way through Yale and then through Stanford for your MBA, why was helping people manage their money so important to you? Well, you know, I, I really saw over time, you know, both through family uh, members as well as friends that a lot of people really had problems with making good financial decisions. And I started doing reading about it and, and learning about it and, and really immersed myself in it found and discovered that, A, it wasn't that complicated, and B, I could assimilate the key lessons and insights to not only improve the financial situation of those that I I knew best and cared most about, but I I was also pretty good at explaining it to other people. And I, I thought there was a real opportunity for me to help people better manage their money that way. In Paying for College for Dummies, you break down several facts about paying for college. What's the number one thing most people forget, but it's the easiest for mm-hmm. them to do? Well, you know, the, the whole process of financial aid is mysterious and, and frankly misnamed. Financial aid is the name that colleges and universities give to the process that they ask you a lot of questions, ask for a lot of financial documentation, more than any other product or service uh, known to mankind. And they do that financial interrogation so that they can determine how much of their full retail price they're going to charge you and your family. On paper, the more financially needy you appear to be, the better the pricing you are going to get from a college or university. They're, they're technically not giving you money. That that's a, a misconception that colleges themselves have said that you know somehow you know the process of financial aid is they're literally giving you money. They're not literally giving you money. They're simply choosing to discount their inflated prices if they don't think that you're in a position to to pay the full freight. The major focus of the book, besides explaining to people some of the increasingly great alternatives to high-cost colleges that are out there, is to understand how the financial aid process works and how you can best position yourself to get better pricing from colleges. One of the things I struggled with was getting through college in four years. I know most people don't. What tip do you have for students to get out in a reasonable amount of time? Well, you know, you've raised an excellent question, and actually that that's a very common problem that a, lo- a lot of students at four-year colleges don't get through in four years. And in fact, in some cases, uh, they never complete their degree at all. In fact, one of the things that I really learned more about in doing the research for this book is to look at graduation rates, especially the five- and six-year graduation rates of different colleges and universities. And I recommend strongly in the book that people use those five- and six-year graduation rates to compare and contrast different schools because the reality is that some schools have a very poor track record 
of ever graduating a, a significant portion of their students. And there can be a variety of reasons for that, not the least of which is that, you know, some schools are expensive and they don't provide sufficient financial support. So students will get in, find a way to make it work for a year or two, and then they have to start working more, taking breaks from college. And before you know it, they're out in the workforce and they've wasted money on half of a college education, which illustrates a number of points. Number one, you don't need a college degree to get a decent job in America today. And and number two, you, you really should know what you're getting yourself into because as you've highlighted and the data highlights, there are many students do not end up graduating from four-year colleges that they started. In your opinion, with colleges potentially moving to online teaching in the fall, is the traditional college path still worth the expense? Well, <laughs> you know, the short answer is it depends. What I strongly encourage readers to do in the Paying for College for Dummies book is to really research the range of options that are open to them. I I think it's certainly fine to consider traditional four-year colleges, but I, I think for most students, it's a mistake to overlook the increasing numbers of lower cost and faster alternatives to college, a number of which you know, lead to really good jobs. You know, simple example of that, you know, these coding academies, boot camps, coding boot camps that are out there that teach students how to do, you know, programming. Those programs are, are very much uh, in demand. Employers love to hire graduates from these coding boot camps. They don't cost a lot of money. They don't take that long. Some don't cost any money at all. They're They're set up so that you don't pay up front, you pay in the future through a so-called income share arrangement where you agree to pay back a certain percentage of your employment salary for a certain number of years, which, which aligns the program's interest with the student's interest because the program only gets paid if the student gets and keeps a decent job. And that's one of the shortcomings of traditional American colleges and universities. They'll admit you, you'll have to rack up tens of thousands of dollars of student debt, but when it comes time to find a job, you're you're kind of on your own. I mean, not, not to say that they don't have a career services department that provides some help, but if things don't work out for you and you don't get a decent job or any job at all, you're the one who's solely responsible for all that debt you've accumulated. With the financial downturn from the coronavirus quarantine keeping athletes from the field, what could be the financial ramifications in the future for both universities and students? We didn't have March Madness this year, and the financial impact that smaller sports and smaller schools could potentially face could be really devastating. That's right. Well, you know, there were a number of trends that were in place before the coronavirus pandemic hit, and the pandemic has, I would argue, accelerated a number of those trends. Uh, One of the big trends that was happening in recent years is that we're seeing a consolidation of the higher education, college and university industry, if you will. There are frankly too many colleges with too many slots. A lot of them are bloated institutions that are not efficiently run. Uh, They charge too much money and don't provide a great service for what they're charging. And so over recent years, we've seen the failure of an increasing number of colleges and universities. We've seen a number of colleges and universities be merged together. And that trend is accelerating during this pandemic, which has squeezed them further uh, with regards to athletics, you know, athletics, you know, at a lot of institutions, I mean, when, when you get outside of the, you know, the big schools that, you know, get TV contracts for 
sports like football and, and baseball and basketball and things like that, when, once you get outside those big schools that get TV contracts and the money from those, at most colleges and universities, the athletics um, and the teams associated with that department cost the school a, a fair amount of money. So we have seen a gradual reduction in, in sports programs over time. And again, that's been accelerated by the pandemic. And, you, and you're right, at some schools, if they were um, granting partial or even full scholarships, uh, we're going to see some of those whittled away as well because the schools simply can't can't afford to do that. Schools schools are under more pressure now, especially if they're having to reduce the density in their dorms. A lot of people don't realize, you know, colleges basically run two businesses on their campus. One is the business of education that they charge tuition for, but the second business is a real estate business. They have all these college dorms on campus, which they're renting out <laughs> to students during the semesters. So, so if, if, you know, which is why a lot of school, a lot of schools are under tremendous financial pressure to bring students back on campus this fall, which I, I think actually is the right thing to do anyway, because if you look at all the worldwide data, the coronavirus dangers for young people are no worse than and, and argue and, and probably actually less than from the seasonal flu. That's the good news for, for young people. So, I mean, we are seeing, you know, rare institutions like, you know, Harvard is having very few students come back, but they have the luxury, the financial luxury of being able to make that decision because they have a gargantuan endowment. Other schools are not in that position. So they're trying to reduce the number of students they have on campus by maybe 20 or 30 percent. Well, if they do that, that means there's a lot less revenue coming in from renting out those dorm rooms to students, and that's going to put further financial pressure on colleges, which is going to cause them to really scrutinize their other spending, including in athletic programs. Why is filling out the FAFSA the most important form for a student? Well, you know, the FAFSA, the the federal form financial aid, is is kind of the the, the most basic of documents that, that schools require families to complete because primary financial data and other data in that document is used uh, as a basis for most colleges and universities to begin to decide how much money they're going to charge you. It's a fairly lengthy form. Some of the questions can be somewhat invasive and intimidating. So the good news is that Paying for College for Dummies walks the reader through how to complete that form and how to be truthful, but also how to position your assets and your your answers in such a way that you're gonna you're gonna get more favorable pricing from schools. Like many other students, my son is heading to the University of Cincinnati in the fall. Is it too late to make changes that could help him in the future? Um, no. Uh, and actually, you know, every year. You know, every year colleges send out financial aid awards, and and what a lot of people don't realize is that if your circumstances change from you know previous months when you first applied or you know when you got the award notice, you know, for example, a number of families have experienced job losses recently, or if they're still work they're still working, their their employment income might have been reduced. And so in cases like that, you can appeal your financial aid offer and with the new and updated information and see if the school might be willing to grant a further discount. One of the things I found most interesting in your book is negotiating a better price in financial aid. Now, come on, Eric, can it really be done? Can you negotiate? 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to suggest that it's easy to do or commonly happens, but absolutely, there are many examples uh, that I've seen where you you can ask for better deal, better pricing. Just don't call it negotiating. I mean, they, that's kind of a dirty word in the collegiate world. They you know they think of it as you know. I mean, that's what you're actually doing, but you can't call it that. Um, it's above them, right? Right. So you have to you have to call it. In a, it's an appeal. Okay, that's the that's the proper you know kind of politically correct word <laughs> to use when you're interacting with folks who work in higher education. You can appeal your award, and you know one reason to do it. Let's say your kid has gotten into two or three schools that he's interested in, but the school that he really wants to go to has the worst offer. Well that might be a good reason to appeal it. Now, the, the worst that can happen is that they say, no, we're not going to revise your offer. They're, they're not going to revoke the offer of admission. It's not like they're going to say, well, gee, we're, you know, you clearly don't want to come here and how dare you question what we're offering you. We're revoking your offer of admission. That's never going to happen. So you have nothing to lose by asking for a better price. And so one reason would be to say that, you know, college XYZ, you know, has offered my son a better merit scholarship. What can you do to, you know, match that? Because, you know, my son really wants to go to your school. You can also ask them how they evaluated your situation. One of the things I talk a lot about in the book is that different schools have very different systems for how they evaluate equity in your home. Some schools count it much more than others. And and sometimes they make mistakes. They they use websites that estimate the market value of your real estate and your, your home. And so, you know, I can tell you from having looked at those various websites that purport to say what a home is worth, that a lot of them have, you know, inaccurate information on them. They can be off by 20, 30% or more. So, and as we discussed earlier, your situation might have changed since you first applied. Maybe you're still working, but your employer cut your pay by 15%. Well, you should tell schools that, and they should use that updated information to give you a better offer. So there are a number of ways that you can get a better deal, and I've seen it happen. You'd be surprised how often it does happen, but you know, you have to speak up and be able to make a you know cogent argument for why you deserve a better price. You volunteer for many organizations, including Big Brothers, Big Sisters, United Way, and World Hunger Year. Why is giving back so important to you? Well, I mean, it's just something that I, I guess I, you know, I, I saw my, my own parents do. I, I saw a practice that, you know, a school like Yale was all about education, but it was also about, you know, making the world a better place. And so... I, it's just something I've always I've always believed in. There are causes that I care about, you know, and those are the ones that I've gotten involved in. Whether it was you know Mothers Against Drunk Driving or, as you said, Big Brothers and, and institutions like that. There are lots of great nonprofits in the United States that help in all sorts of ways. And you know, I think there's opportunities for people to get involved in all different things that they feel passionately about. You've taught financial management courses. Now, could you see from class to class which students are going to be successful and which students will probably be filing bankruptcy? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, to a certain extent, but, you know, I mean, the good news is that while it's never, it's not easy to change habits, people can change habits, especially once they get better educated on this topic. And, and one of the things, you know, I, I, and I said this in the very first, for Dummies book that I, I wrote decades ago, Personal Finance for Dummies, that, 
you know, you don't, traditional schools don't typically teach this stuff. You know, people, you can know, graduate from high school, you can graduate from one of the top colleges and universities in the country. And most people have never had like a personal financial management course. And in a lot of families and homes, it's kind of a taboo subject to talk about. Maybe your parents didn't know enough to teach you, or maybe money only came up when parents were arguing in a household. So, you know, a lot of a lot of people get to adulthood and they don't really know well how to manage money, how to deal with money, how to make good money decisions. I try to give people a message of hope. <laughs> you know, this stuff isn't rocket science. You can learn how to do it. Uh, you don't need to even hire a high-priced advisor, but you do you do have to be willing to put at least some time and effort into it and be willing to work at it over time to, to make better decisions. Now, when you consult, you're an hourly consultant, so you're not tied to transactions or fee-based, right? Yeah. Well, it's a good question. You know, back, back when I was doing financial counseling work, I, I was unusual, and certainly at that time, in that I only worked on an hourly basis, similar to you know, the way you'd hire a, a tax advisor. People would want to have a review of their financial situation and get recommendations, and I would just charge them a, an hourly fee to do that. I, I didn't sell products on commission, which historically is how the financial planning and brokerage industry has delivered a lot of products, especially to middle-income people. If you got recommended insurance or investment products, they, you know, the broker or so-called financial planner would recommend things that gave them a commission, which creates you know conflicts of interest in what, what they're recommending and how they're doing it. Uh, there are so-called fee-based advisors out there that charge a percentage of assets under management. I never gravitated towards that model because, number one, it, it kind of left non-wealthy people out of the equation because if you didn't meet the the net worth thresholds, um, you know, like some advisors don't even want to talk to you if you have less than a half a million dollars to manage, then you're out of luck. But that system also creates conflicts of interest because suppose you do have some money saved and you're debating between investing it in the stock market versus buying a piece of real estate. Well, if the advisor is getting paid a percentage of assets under management, Real estate's not part of that equation, so they're going to want you to turn the money over to them so they can invest it in stocks and mutual funds and things like that and collect their 1% fee per year. So that's why you know, I, I do recommend if people are going to get help with their situation that they you know, try to find somebody who is just selling their time and, and not selling anything else. Time's running out, so it's time for the Rocky Nate. Eight rapid-fire random questions. Answer with the first thing that comes to your mind. There is no pressure. Yeah, Okay. <laughs> Favorite thing to do to relax? Uh, I love watching sports. So the, the pandemic's been tough. <laughs> <laughs> what have you done to take advantage of your time in quarantine? You know, I've tried to do more reading, and I've also tried to do more thinking, like, what do I want to do with the rest of my life, especially my work life? So it's gotten me to brainstorm a little bit. Taking more walks, you know, I've probably taken more walks in the last several months I've taken in the last several years. So I guess that's a good thing to get out the nature. Favorite way to get rid of writer's block? Go to the gym. You know, there's really there's really no better therapy because if I'm at the gym and I'm working out or, or playing a sport with somebody else, then my mind's on that. It gets the, you know, blood flowing, the adrenaline flowing, the endorphins. What are the, what are they called? The endorphins in your head and um, you know, great opportunity to socialize with other people. So yeah, to me, that's, that's the best therapy. Okay. So what sport are you the most competitive in? 
I I actually like playing squash. I didn't know what squash was when I went to college. I thought squash was a vegetable, but I I had a I had a a roommate at college who taught me how to play and kind of got hooked on it. And it's kind of a weird sport because a lot of people don't play it and it's not played everywhere. But it, it's a fun sport and it, and it's great exercise. It's hard. You can't socially distance though when you're playing squash. That's the only challenge. That is so <laughs> true. What's your one guilty pleasure? Uh, I love chocolate, anything that has chocolate in it. So, you know, it's okay when it's in moderation, but when I eat too much, then can't fall asleep at night and I get fat. So you got to, got to watch how much of the chocolate I eat. <laughs> What's the first major purchase you made after your first book became a bestseller? That's a good question. Uh, it probably was a hot tub. Yeah, it was a hot tub. <laughs> got a hot tub for the backyard and it's just kind of a good thing to go hang out and you know, look up at the stars and uh, relax. So yeah, that was my, that was my first indulgence that I remember. <laughs> What's the next financial mess that you're going to tackle for a dummy's book? You know, I actually it may not be a book. I'm I'm actually looking to get back to teaching courses. I I really miss doing that. I used to teach in person courses, and I was a number of years ago. And I'm I'm thinking about doing live courses online. Um, so yeah, and I'm 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 working on trying to you know do like a personal financial management course, which is similar to a course that I used to teach, and then maybe a course that's more focused on investing, and and maybe even a course that's targeted to small business owners and how to manage a small business. And what's the one thing you will not pay extra for? Um, one thing I won't pay extra for. Well, you know, interestingly, like I won't. In recent years, I haven't been willing to pay, and maybe I don't know if this answers your question. I'm not willing to pay somebody to clean my house. <laughs> you know, I don't. I don't mind cleaning my house. It, it seems kind of weird, but like I, I actually find it therapeutic to like get the vacuum out and like clean an area, and I'm done, and I can see what I did, and I get some exercise. You know, at my age, pushing the vacuum around a little bit exercise. So. <laughs> Maybe I'm weird in that regard, but I, I actually, that's one thing I won't pay extra for now. <laughs> Eric, where can people find out more information yeah, about you? Uh, folks can go to my website, erictyson.com, and the books are widely available, uh, traditional retail bookstores as well as uh, online stores like amazon.com. He likes to play squash once he found out it wasn't just a vegetable, and chocolate is his guilty pleasure. Best-selling author of personal finance books, his latest is Paying for College for Dummies, Eric Tyson. Thanks so much for taking the time out to talk with us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. And that, my friends, is Beyond the Mic.